Please turn in your Bibles this evening to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, page 944. The Bible's there before you. We've heard a word from the Lord today concerning the resurrection that we are called to remember and to believe and to proclaim. And we are told in the Word as well that we will face resistance, that we will face oppression, objection to that gospel message, that good news. As surprising as we may think it is, why would people not want to hear about how they can live forever? Yet the Bible tells us the cross is an offense because it tells us we must die to ourselves and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, for in Him alone can we be saved. So as we live in this life, we wait for what God has for us, but it most certainly will come to pass. And Paul tells us tonight why that is the case. Look with me then, starting at verse 31, the second part of that verse, Romans chapter 8, this is the Word of God. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, the resurrection declares that beyond doubt, God is for us. The disciples, upon seeing Christ, Being with Christ in those intervening days between Christ's resurrection and His ascension likely began to feel rather invincible. After all, who could say, well, my rabbi rose from the dead. And it shows in Acts chapter 1 what their thinking was as Jesus is is speaking to them about his resurrection and all that it means. They come to him, Acts chapter 1, and they say, Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are we going to wipe out all of our enemies and rule? Of course we know, don't we, what he says. The times of the dates 
are not given to man, not even the Son of Man, but you are to wait for power from on high, and then you are to go and be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. They also learn that the resurrection of their Lord and now upon their dawning faith, their Savior, the resurrection did not mean an end to suffering. In fact, it was about to begin in greater earnest for them, and they needed a power from above, and they needed to rely on God to press on. That's where the psalmist brought us tonight, didn't he? Where is God? Seated upon his throne in his holy temple. That we might not hide, that we might not flee, but that we might advance. As those broken vessels through which the gospel goes forth. The treasure in jars of clay. The enemy is on the prowl. As we heard this morning, he hates that message of the open tomb. And we see how he works to blind minds. We see his strategy to some degree. The soldiers are told to lie about the resurrection. The leaders were were seeking to wipe out Jesus and his followers. They were ready to snuff out the memory of Jesus and the memory of that movement and, one of, and they were very effective. They had very powerful rhetoricians on their side, those who were great speakers, and one of those who stood over against Christianity was one Saul of Tarsus, who sought to wipe out the followers of Christ wherever he found them and whenever he could get his hands on them. This one who was a Pharisee associated with the Jewish ruling council, he worked very hard to wipe out the followers until on his mission, one of his missions, Christ met him on the road. The road to Damascus. The risen Christ. And his life was changed forever. His zeal to persecute now turned to proclamation, to proclamation concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Him crucified, Him risen for the strengthening of the saints, going throughout the churches, the book of Acts tells us, to strengthen the saints with that message of Christ crucified and risen. The high point of Saul, who took, who used that name Paul, now teaching, In Romans 1, that is the high point of his teaching. There is, the opening of chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we see that word therefore, we have to ask what it's there for. Paul's drawing a conclusion from what he's been teaching. He's drawing conclusion... What he's been saying earlier in his epistle to the Romans, I invite you to turn back to Romans chapter 5, verse 16, where we see him speaking, teaching in his writing. There he speaks of the universal effects of sin. Before that, he has talked about why is death over all? Why has death entered into the world? And he declares, because of sin. 
And is it all-inclusive? Yes, indeed it is. Romans 5, he says, that in Adam's fall, sinned we all, as the Puritan primer used to say many centuries ago. In Adam's fall, sinned we all, and came under the curse of death. Death came as a result of the transgression. It came over all men. Verse 15. And then he speaks, however, of the diametrically opposed idea of life that conquers death. The free gift of grace that God gives in Christ. He gives victory over death and over all death through one who would come to remove all accusation. One who would come, excuse me, to live righteously, whose righteousness would then be granted to those who believe in him, that they might come to God. Look at me, look with me at verse 16, Romans 5. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, speaking of Adam's sin, for the judgment followed one trespass, the judgment that The day that you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. And it brought condemnation. But the free gift, following many trespasses, brought justification. There's condemnation and there's justification. And Paul is not looking to himself any longer as a Pharisee and saying, well, and it's found in me and in all my goodness. He says, oh, no. No, no. Righteousness apart from the law, Romans chapter 3 says. In Christ... A righteousness that is from God by faith. Drop down to verse 18. He repeats it again. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. One act of righteousness being understood as we look at the text as Christ. One act of righteousness. His entire life being that act of obedience. Perfect obedience. leading to justification in life for those who would believe in him. Paul seems to be referring back to that in Romans chapter 8, bring you back to Romans chapter 8, when he says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Their sins have been blotted out and the righteousness of Christ has been granted, reckoned to them. No longer condemned. No condemnation then first this evening. God is for us. No condemnation. As the hymn says, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. Alive in Him. My living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Apart from him, we are condemned to die. That's how Paul starts his letter. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Then Romans 6, verse 23, and the wages of that sin is death. Each and every person who has ever lived, who will live, will stand before God and give account for what they've done in the body and those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. will be judged not guilty. For His righteousness is theirs. 
those who stand apart from him will be judged righteously and condemned for their sin. Paul goes on to speak of believers being co-heirs with Christ, co-heirs of the gift of pardon and eternal life, verse 17 of chapter 8. Before we enter that glory, however, he says in the verses 18 and following, we will face suffering. These sufferings, Paul assures us, are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed. And remember, he was one who was permitted to see that glory as he testifies to it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Caught up to the third heaven, seeing things that a man is not permitted to tell. Understanding the glory that is to come. He speaks with experience or with with the knowledge. There is no condemnation, but there is suffering before that day where we are glorified. It will certainly come to pass. Listen to the golden chain of of salvation there as he says it. Verse 30, those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also will glorify. It, it It will come to pass. But there will be suffering. Paul goes on to say that our knowledge that God is for us is what keeps us from losing in the battles that we face here below. He is for us. God is for us. Verse 31. He is with us. Soon after Jesus' ascension, disciples began to face that increased suffering, standing before the religious leaders, standing before Crowds that have been stirred up. Paul being stoned, left for dead. Christ's victory over death did not mean that they would have ease, but they learned that they would receive grace upon grace. That is what John had learned and what he wrote at the beginning of his gospel. John chapter 1 verse 16. Grace upon grace to help them in time of need. Well, this brought... To my mind, what we've been studying in men's Bible study, we've been looking at the benedictions of the Scriptures, or at least we were spending some time there, and we recently heard teaching on 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10 and 11. I'd invite you to turn there in your Bibles, 1 Peter 5, verses 10 and 11. This is what it says. Peter writes to those who are suffering for the faith all around the world, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Just as an aside, but we're not going to look at it tonight, this knowledge, this awareness of God's protection leads to doxology. It leads to praise, verse 11. We don't have time to look at that tonight. But verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore you. He has called you to his eternal glory. It is established and cannot be reversed. For God is for us. And it says here, he is the God of all grace. There in verse 10. 
saved by God, the God of all grace, called to His eternal glory, it shall come to pass. And when we stand for God, He will make sure that we do not stand alone. Therefore, we need not fear. No condemnation, because God is for us. Secondly, no fear, because God is for us. Because God's grace will see us through, He is able to make us stand firm. Listen to that in verse 12. Paul or Peter writing, giving regards from various individuals, and he says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. The grace of God enables you to stand firm. That's what he's teaching here in the close of this epistle to those who are suffering. And then, and then look, at, look at verse 13. Very interesting. He says this, Who sends greetings along with Peter? She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Is he speaking? Who is he speaking of? He's speaking of the other believers. Where do they find themselves? On a nice tropical beach somewhere? Standing firm next to the palm tree? No, in Babylon. Picture of bondage being surrounded by all kinds of godlessness and wickedness, but standing firm by the grace of God, having no fear, for God was with them. Where do you and I live right now? Not a trick question. The United States. Are they united? One nation under God? One nation under God right now? Or is it more that we are in bondage one to another to godlessness, to all kinds of wickedness? How is it that we can stand with no fear? We don't always do that very well, do we? But how is it that we can stand with no fear? We remember what God teaches right here in Romans chapter 8. God is for us. Another example in scriptures, where does Paul write his epistle to the the Philippians? Or what does he say in his, his epistle to the Philippians? He says, I'm writing to you and I have this confidence I want you to know that what has happened to me, namely my imprisonment, has served to advance the gospel. It has become known to all that my imprisonment is for Christ. Again, he's not on a beach somewhere, relaxing. He's in prison. Fearlessly proclaiming Christ so that all of the prison guard knew why he was there. Time not wasted in fretting, not wasted in self-pity, but seized for the Lord. How could Paul have such peace? Because he knew that when he came to the throne of grace with confidence, he would find grace in his time of need. Where's that found? Book of Hebrews. What's going on in Hebrews? Tribulation. Surprise. Suffering. 
Surprise! Trying to turn these new believers back to the Old Testament system to follow the Old Testament laws and regulations to turn from Christ. They were being persecuted. And they certainly felt the pressure. That's why the letter is written. That's why the sermon is delivered. Don't turn back. Don't drift away from what you have already heard. Hebrews chapter 2. Don't go back to those, how does he define it? Those futile, empty, meaningless practices. They are no longer filled with meaning because they are fulfilled in Christ. Look to him. God helps in time of need. He identifies with us in our suffering. He's not aloof. If you've been reading the Nearer to God devotional, we've been, there's studies on Exodus, Exodus chapter 3. You remember what it says there in Exodus chapter 3. God is speaking about his people. What does he say? I have surely seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cry. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver. I hear, I see, I come down. I'm not aloof. Am I a God only, who, a God only far away and not one also near? Can man hide what he does from me? No, indeed he cannot. Psalm 11 taught us that already tonight. They can hide in the dark thinking they're going to get away with it, but God sees and he will bring just judgment. God has come down to our bondage and has shown his power to raise us, not only to deliver us from bondage here, but to deliver us to life. He can most certainly preserve us, no fear. Jesus said when he was still with his disciples that the world hated him, and if they hated him, the world would hate them. But they would not be alone, for he and the Father would come to them through the Spirit to assure them of life in him, John 16 and John 14. Persecution comes from all sides. It comes from the irreligious, the unreligious, and the super-religious. We've seen some of that already. The super-religious, we know the Pharisees. The irreligious, they sneered at Paul when he spoke of the resurrection. Oh, the resurrection, they laughed at him. They mocked him. What a ridiculous teaching that is, they said to him, Acts chapter 17. The unreligious would seek their death. The super-religious would try to throw them out of the synagogues, Jesus said, John 16, would even think that killing them was offering a service to God. That's how bad it would get. The religious people are doing this. No fear. God is for us. Man does not control our destiny, Jesus said. We don't fear the one who can destroy the body. We fear the one who can cast both body and soul into hell. Namely God. And if we fear him, then we fear not death because he has delivered through his son, Jesus Christ. He is for us. Listen to those words in Romans 8 again. Verses 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is going to bring any charge that will lead to the believer's condemnation? For it is God who justifies. 
by granting faith in Christ that we might be secure in him. Then 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died and who is at the right hand of God. Indeed, interceding for us. The one who has been raised, as we heard this morning. As Christians, we are being charged with ever-increasing crimes today. Crimes against humanity, crimes of hate speech, crimes of bigotry. In the world's court, we're judged guilty of crimes so great we'll never be able to repay. But we should at least try. All the reparations are coming out. Oh, you need to do this and do that and repay and repay and repay. And as Christians, we know guilt. We know about guilt. The Bible speaks plenty about guilt, but we also know how to be freed from guilt. First and foremost, sin is not against our fellow man. It's against God. And as we are made right with God, then we want to make it right with our fellow man insofar as we can, doing nothing that is unlawful, but keeping God's commands, speaking the truth in love. We know there is forgiveness, and we know that forgiveness was not cheap. It cost our Savior his life. We know that it was not valueless. Indeed, it has paid for all my sins, all your sins. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, I poor contempt on all my pride. No goodness in me. When I survey the wondrous cross, see a love so amazing, so divine, perfect in all of its way that, it, that I see that it demands my soul, my life, my all. When God forgives, it's not a cheap dismissal of sin. It demands the death of His Son who emptied Himself, as the hymn says, of all but love. Who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 35 asks, Paul says. Well, that's a good question. Because there is much that we do and think and say that disqualifies us from entrance into heaven. Who may enter into heaven? Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart. And not a one of us does, says the book of Proverbs. Not in ourselves. Beloved, we are not received by God because we are so great, but because He is so great in love. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Ephesians 2, verse 4. God being rich in mercy. Who will condemn? He that is God. What does Paul say? Did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also graciously give us all things? That's Paul's confidence. No fear. He will give us all that we need. That which we cannot provide. All things, that meaning, that, that meaning the things that we can't provide. We can't provide righteousness to our account. 
We can't provide the appropriate reparation or payment. He's going to give us all things of the abundance and the riches of Christ. Perhaps today we do not fully appreciate the beauty of that statement for we think that we're better than other people. After all, we watch the news and we think, I don't behave like that, at least. I don't speak that way. I don't act out in that way. And yet the scriptures say that the Lord sees. Psalm 11 said that tonight, didn't it? He sees the acts of his own and the acts of the wicked, all of them. Our hearts. Today we seem more troubled by what our neighbor might say about us. We seem more intent on avoiding offense to our neighbor and out of fear we capitulate, we compromise, we don't want to speak clearly where our confidence is for fear of maybe facing some Suffering? But it's not our neighbor that we will face in the end. It is God. It is then that our only hope is the righteousness of Christ credited to our account and his intercession for us, which he lovingly does for his sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep, he says, John 10, for believers, for my own, and I do it only to take it up again to show that this sacrifice is sufficient. And I go to the Father to prepare a place for my own who will follow after me. Paul's questioning in Romans 8 is a questioning that focuses him and his readers upon that relationship that we need most to have correct, and that is that vertical relationship before the horizontal can be understood properly, before we understand what is our relationship, how do we interact with those on a horizontal. He says, who is going to condemn because God has justified? I look at that relationship and I see that I have no fear Therefore, I can speak to my fellow man with no fear that they too might know the way to be saved. He was not concerned of man's estimate of himself. It was what God thought of him. And in Christ Jesus, he declares that he is a child of God, made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. Is there fear in tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? And he says, no. We will face such things. But in Christ, we have no fear. If one wants to be in that position of no condemnation, having no fear, then there is no other but Christ. Thirdly, no other. God is for us in no other than Jesus Christ. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him, but the one who comes to Him shall in no wise be cast out.
Paul writes, in him we are more than conquerors, verse 37. No, none of this will separate us. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The word there is hupernikao, hyper-conquerors. With Christ, no trial comes. We are more than conquerors. We come to see more and more the depth of God's love, the height, the width, the breadth as he prays for the Ephesians, that you would know this, the vastness of God's love, and that you would then conquer and hyper-conquer, super-conquer, as you learn more and more that God is for you, and nothing can stand against you. In spite of ourselves, God works for us. He works all things for our good. When we experience His presence in trial, the Spirit works and increases our love such that we not only come through, but we come through with a stronger sense of God's power. With Christ through trial, we receive a reward that will far surpass anything that the world can give, more than conquerors, even over death. An eternal glory waiting for us that far outweighs it all, Paul says. And he has known suffering far beyond what you or I know. Paul looks past the sufferings to the one who is like no other, to Christ. To Christ Jesus is Lord. And he marvels at the love which Christ has for him and declares in verses 38 and 39, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because God is for us, In Christ, no condemnation will stand. Because God is for us, we know that He will make us stronger through the suffering and tribulation, no fear. We know because God is for us, appointing that perfect Savior unlike any other, because we have that one who is like no other, we are confident that He will receive us to Himself on that last day. And then we say with Paul, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For in Him, God is for us. Amen. Dear Father, we read these words and they are such a balm to our Weary souls, sin-weary, weary of suffering, weary, tired. Yet we know that you call us to come, that all who are weary and heavy laden can come and find rest for our souls. And in this, we hear that you are for us once again. In this day, we are reminded that as we go out and face Whatever is set before us, we will be more than conquerors through him who loved us. O Lord, increase our faith. Lead us to a deeper love. Establish our hope. 
Hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen.